This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Roe versus Wade overturn, taking away a fundamental right of American women to choose an abortion. In conversation with Sean Fine, justice writer for the Globe and Mail, Canada's leading daily newspaper. The leak last week of an unpublished opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the 49-year precedent of Roe v. Wade sent shockwaves through American society. In summary, if the leaked opinion supported by a majority of the court's nine justices is adopted by the court, it will effectively extinguish a woman's right to an abortion, at least on a national basis. To deprive anyone of a right which has been the law of the land for 49 years is a momentous decision with unforeseeable consequences for American society. Joining us today from his office in Toronto, Canada, to discuss this issue is Sean Fine, justice writer for the Globe and Mail. Good afternoon, Sean, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. My pleasure. Sean, would you take a moment to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. I'm a father of three. I'm a retired baseball coach. Like all Canadians, I love hockey deeply. And I'm a novelist at heart. I'm now writing a children's picture book called The Dog Who Didn't Know How to Be a Dog. (laughs) Finally, I have not been out of my basement in two years. (laughs) Well, Sean, you're very modest. Sean is an award-winning journalist, having won Canada's prestigious National Newspaper Award for writing on law and politics on three separate occasions. Congratulations, Sean. Thank you. Well, Sean, let's get right to the heart of the matter. How has this story taken the Canadian public? Well, I think we're watching with mixed feelings. Some people watch in total horror, and other people watch with envy. There are are people in Canada who would like this country to go that direction. And there are people in Canada who are very much pro-Donald Trump, people who want to see the world change radically, people who don't accept the kind of liberal trend that we have in Canada. But they are in a minority. I think that abortion has been widely accepted in Canada. Certainly the polls show that 71% like it the way it is, which is higher than the case of the status quo pre this Alito ruling. As I say, mixed emotions. In Canada, we were talking about the history of abortion in Canada. Canada doesn't acknowledge abortion as a right. Could you explain that difference between the way Canada has legislated abortion and the way the U.S. has done it? Yes. So there are so many differences between our two countries, and they, that's what really stands out in this case. I mean, differences in politics, differences in law, differences in how we approach our Constitution. Your ruling in Roe was in 1973, and that found a right that women had a right to liberty and privacy and to an abortion. In Canada, we had a criminal law on abortion, and that stood until 1988, so Mm -hmm. 15 years after Roe fell. And in 1988, our Supreme Court struck down the, the criminal law of abortion, but they did not find that abortion was a woman's right. Rather, the majority found that the law was too bureaucratic, that the law stated as one of its purposes to protect the life and health of women. But because it was so difficult to get an abortion through the process that was prescribed, that is, you had to go before a hospital committee of four doctors 
there are a lot of hurdles. So the court found that the law worked against its purposes. So it was just one judge who found that it was a woman's right. That was the only female judge on the court at the time, Bertha Wilson. So we did not go as far as your court did in finding a woman's right. In fact, it left the matter in the hands of our parliament. Now, parliament did not sit still. They actually came right back with another criminal law. That was a conservative government. It passed through our House of Commons. But like you, we have a bicameral system. Mm -hmm. In our Senate, it died on a tie vote. And it was actually a conservative member who, who passed that tie vote. So ever since then, we've been left without a federal criminal law on abortion. You have to remember, in Canada, the criminal law is solely the jurisdiction of the federal government. Mm -hmm. So if there's no federal criminal law, there is no criminal law on abortion. But neither did the federal government come back with a law saying it's a woman's right and here are the parameters of that right. No, instead, it just became seen as a medical matter. It is between a woman and her doctor. It is regulated, as other medical matters are, by our provincial self-regulating bodies and ministries and so on. But it, no right, but no criminal law. Now, in Canada, is the issue of abortion as contentious as it is here in the United States? And is it political football as it's here in the United States? Well, not to the same extent. I mean, we have, we have our protests. We've had violence. We had a bombing at a Toronto abortion clinic years ago. And we still have a strong group of people who would like to see abortion limitations in this country. No question. And it continues, continues to be a political football, but not quite in the way it is down there. Because for, for many years now in Canada, it has been seen by all the major parties, including the Conservative Party, as simply not, not on. That if you try to go there, the public will punish you. So we had a Conservative Party with a very strong leader, Stephen Harper, from 2006 to 2015. But he was pragmatic, and he... He knew, he felt anyway, that if he gave in to his base and tried to establish some limitations on abortion, it would cost him with the broad, the broadest group of the Canadian public. And in fact, this became, you know, talked about as a hidden agenda. Well, what happens if the Conservatives get in pub, into power? Do they have a hidden agenda, a, agenda that includes abortion? And he said no. And in fact, he did not legislate in that area. So if he didn't, it seems likely to stay quiescent. Uh-huh. Well, I guess to the extent that Canada, in summary, what you're telling me is Canada regards abortion as a medical procedure, a medical matter, and therefore to be decided between the patient and the doctor, and it has not been elevated to a right. So as a result, why would a political party get involved a medical matter as opposed to a right? But now there is discussion at the federal level. The government, the governing party now, the Liberals, have promised to make it a right. But I think in practice there are some difficulties in figuring out how to do so. Also, it, it may bring a lot of backlash and so on. So it's a little bit uncertain where we're going on that. But the status quo seems to be working. Now, as I say, there's a lot of opposition. and You know, abortion clinics have a lot of security because of some of the opponents of it. And still today, there's a leadership race in the Conservative Party that's going on right now. And so it is an issue with the social conservative element in that party. And the party constantly has to try to reconcile certain of its beliefs with its desire to be pragmatic and to appeal 
to a larger Canadian population. The Canadian Constitution, we were talking about that earlier, and you had said that in 1982, the actual Charter of Rights was was enacted. And up until that point, did Canada have an unwritten constitution? Well, we had a constitution from 1867. That was the uh, that's the initial bargain of confederation, and that basically said who does what. It was we had no bill of rights that was constitutionalized until 1982. Now let's just come let's come back to to the medical procedure itself. How is it regulated? Is it regulated? uniformly and nationally across Canada? And are there limits on, is it by trimester uh, as regards availability of abortion? Could you give us some sense of the parameters of abortion in Canada? Yeah, we don't have any national rule. It's all provincially regulated. But but I I think it's fair to say that as a general principle, it's up to the time of viability, but that is rare. Most abortions, by far the vast majority from what I understand, go on much earlier in the process. It would take an extraordinary, it would take something extraordinary to happen after 20 weeks. Oh, really? Okay. Because we've we've had recent legislation, particularly in the state of New York, where late-term abortions were, were signed into law by outgoing Governor Andrew Cuomo. I think there's also a move here in California to permit late-term abortion. So the initial ruling of Roe versus Wade, which permitted abortion in the first trimester, certainly in those two states, has been, has been somewhat extended. But then there are other states which have severely curtailed it, such as Texas and Oklahoma. So we, we have this crazy quilt, if you will, of state regulation, even though we still have Roe versus Wade, which is the, the national standard. But we are developing this crazy quilt of states that are very strongly in favor of abortion and permit it and states that are, are very much against it. And if Roe versus Wade falls, that's we'll be left with this patchwork quilt of a number of states which will permit it, and then quite a few states which will either ban it outright or where it will be very significantly Yes, and I understand that you have some states like Missouri that want to stop women from leaving the state to get an abortion. You have states, and, and Missouri would empower people to sue anyone who aids or bets in that situation. And, of course, Texas has that law that also allows for anyone in the country to sue anyone who uh, aids or bets an abortion after 15 weeks. So when we look at these things, these are impossible to conceive of in Canada. Some places, sometimes we have access issues. In New Brunswick, we have only three hospitals for a population of 700,000 or so people who that provide abortions. And there's one private clinic, but that is not paid for by our Medicare system. So the access is somewhat limited there, and that has been an issue. But the idea of states sort of going to war at least in a legal sense over this, read about um, some states may pass laws to ensure that a Missouri-type law would have no effect over its borders. And the, the notion of extradition from state to state that you have, we have nothing like that in Canada. The fact that Missouri would try to prevent a woman from traveling to seek an abortion I can't imagine what the, the, I don't think there's a sound legal basis for that because anyone can travel for any purpose whatsoever. And the enforceability of such a law by Missouri can't imagine how it could be enforceable. Practically speaking, 
And legally speaking, I can't imagine that it would be would be upheld, but I have heard that that's a possibility coming down the road. What do you think about this private party enforcement of abortion laws, which first surfaced in the Texas case, now seems to be in the Texas abortion law and in Missouri's new abortion law? What do you think about the fact that private citizens, rather than the state, are going to be able to enforce the law? Well, I think for Canadians that kind of approach has no reference point here, that where you have a, a constitutional right in particular, as you did in this case, uh, to give to empower private citizens as a way of getting around states' role, because like here, the Constitution, the Charter of Rights applies only to government action. So to empower private citizens to try to take away a constitutional right, it, it just would not happen. Now, Canada, what, what I found in the ruling draft ruling by Justice Alito was the stamp of originalism, this notion that because when you look back at U.S. history and, uh, you know, the tradition, the laws going back to the Constitution's founding and right up, I guess, till 1973, he did not find respect for abortion rights. In Canada, we have what is known as a living tree tradition of the Constitution. So Mm -hmm. we do have a modern Constitution passed, as we've discussed, in 1982. But I just want to take you back to a, a big case in Canadian history that established the foundations of how we do our Constitution today. Mm-hmm. This is called the Persons Case. It's a woman's rights case. So in our initial Constitution, 1867, women were not considered legal persons. So in the 1920s, when five women wanted to um, have a chance to join the Canadian Senate, they were told they couldn't because they were not legal persons. They went to our Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld that. They said, no, you aren't legal persons. Well, at the time, uh, you could appeal Supreme Court rulings to the Privy Council in England. And the Privy Council said that women are legal persons and that the law has to be allowed to change with the times. And the phrase that they used was that the the Constitution is a living tree, Mm -hmm. changing and growing with the times within its natural limits. And when the Charter was enacted in 1982, right from the beginning, in the earliest cases, the judges noted that earlier ruling and, and, and embodied that principle of the living tree in their rulings. So, for example, sexual orientation was not a protected uh, ground of discrimination in our charter, mm-hmm. but in the first time this issue came up in 1995, the court read that ground into the charter. So from there, it became obvious that gay marriage was was coming down the pike, and it did eight years later. Assisted dying is another area. So the law is constantly changing here, and we don't... What, what stands out there to me is that is the, the frozenness of rights. In our system, we don't look at, at the past and say, okay, if rights weren't respected there, we're not going to respect them now. Mm-hmm. We, we try to determine the purpose of the right. We look at international law. We look at the rulings of other other countries' courts and so on, and we look at the context in which things play out to determine whether a right should be upheld. Is there a Canadian equivalent at the court level, the Supreme Court level, of originalism, or is that is that anathema? You just focus on the living tree, which seems to make an awful lot of sense. There, yeah, there's not really an equivalent. I mean, there are always cases. I mean, judges look at the words of the charter, but remember, they are they tend to be broad and vague, as you know, right, know every circumstance that's going to arise. But we have had some rulings in the last couple of years where the court 
seems to be, where a majority, a very small majority, seems to be narrowing the way they interpret right, looking more closely at the words. It's not quite originalism, but it, it seems to have an echo of it. That may be part of the U.S. influence. It's hard to say. So we have the Canadian philosophy of the living tree, which is adapting the Constitution to modern times, to changing standards and changing attitudes towards society, versus originalism, which is a judicial philosophy, particularly on the conservative side of the jurisprudence field, which sticks to the the original intent and the original document of the Constitution. So, you know, certainly the, the living tree philosophy, while we don't call it that here in the United States, there are many justices who would be comfortable with that philosophy, though it's not called living tree here. Yes, I think you get to the same place by somewhat different reason and process. Mm -hmm. Are there other takeaways and learning points that the Canadian public and Canadian leaders are looking to in this Roe versus Wade debate? Well, I think there's a feeling from some in the conservative movement here that they would love to be able to trap lightning in a bottle, as the cliche goes, the way that uh, President Trump did down there. But no one seems to have that particular gift here. We had, for instance, this trucker's convoy. Yes. Um, I don't think this is a tangent. It's, it's all sort of tied together. And they were talking about freedom, and they had a very noisy protest, and they blockaded borders and caused no end of grief for some people. But for a certain kind of politician, it was well, how do we tap into the energy that they're bringing to this? And how do we do so in a way that does not cause others to flee from us? And this is playing out, as I mentioned, in the in the uh, Conservative Party leadership race right now. You know, when, when Canadians, more conservative Canadians, or socially conservative Canadians, look at what's happening down south, there is a longing for perhaps more conservative appointments to our Supreme Court. In your country, the Federalist Society imprimatur became necessary under Trump for, mm-hmm. you know, to get onto the Supreme Court. We don't have anything like that here. So how do you see the Supreme Court with people like this? But as I mentioned, it, it, that would be futile because it, it has not been seen as politically uh, doable to even bring up abortion here. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, acting Conservative Party leader here told her party members initially not even to comment on the, on the ruling. Mm-hmm. So what we're learning is our countries are, are diverging more and more, it seems. And uh, we're just sort of watching. I think a lot of people are, are happy that uh, we have the system we have. Were there any other outstanding points in Alito's opinion that wish to discuss and wish to, hi- wish to highlight? He used the word neutrality and uh, that, that the judges should be neutral by returning this matter to the state. And that was something that, if I recall correctly, uh, Justice Kavanaugh said at the hearing. And that, that is another notion that is totally at odds with the way we do our, our constitutional cases here. Judges cannot be neutral about constitutional rights. The Constitution is supposed to establish a floor for rights. Mm-hmm. What is the minimum standard of rights in Canada? And judges can't just throw up their hands and return that to the politicians. They have to decide whether the constitutional standards are, are met. It seems like an abdication. It seems almost like throwing out the Constitution. I mean, if you can throw out the Constitution on this right, why not on other rights? Why not say, well, we, we're we going to bring back the 
anti-miscegenation laws, or at least be neutral on them and let states that want those laws do them. That was one thing that really stood out to me. There's no such concept of neutrality. That, that, that whole word is, just doesn't fit, would not fit up here. One of the statements that he made in his opinion, he was, I guess, trying to reassure readers that this decision, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, would not set a precedent for other decisions that were based on a finding of privacy, such as gay marriage and the contraception, the availability of contraception through the 1965 Griswold decision. He tried to reassure the the reader and the public that overturning Roe v. Wade would not set a precedent to unravel those important decisions. But for the life of me, I don't see, I don't follow that logic. It seems to me if this precedent is set and privacy, the woman's right to an abortion is not founded in privacy, which is in the 14th Amendment under the Due Process Clause, how does it not jeopardize those other decisions that also grew out of that acknowledgement of the right to privacy under the 14th Amendment? Yes, I I, I spoke to a Canadian constitutional scholar who said that what Justice Alito was saying was that the logic that he was using and not being able to find an abortion right, you know, a couple hundred years ago, he would not apply. Oh, don't worry, folks. We won't apply that logic in other areas. He says the two don't really square. But at the same time, courts are practical bodies that don't like to go out too far or in front of people. And uh, it may be impractical or impolitic to go out on those issues. But still, the logic does lend itself to expansion. I mean, that's how law works. Change is built on change, and courts change, so who knows? Another thing in his ruling was that he said that looking at this as a woman's right under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment is absolutely foreclosed, he said, by our precedents. But, of course, Roe versus Wade was a big precedent, yes. as was Casey, mm-hmm. and taking those rights down was not foreclosed. So I found the internal logic a little bit uh, inconsistent. For, are the appointment of Supreme Court judges judges in Canada, are they as politically fraught in Canada as they are here in the United States with one party trying to gain control ideologically of the Supreme Court and the other party digging in its heels to prevent that gaining of control? Is there any equivalent of that in Canada? No. There isn't. And in fact, there's a vacancy right now, and I'm covering it, and it, I always enjoy doing it, but it's not nearly as exciting as what happens in your country. There's a lot of respect for the court. There have been politicians, I mean, it's certainly within their purview to try to change the way the courts respond on constitutional issues. And the conservative prime minister that I mentioned, Stephen Harper, certainly tried to do that. It's really not as fraught. We have a hearing like the one you have, the nomination hearing. Yes. But the committee does not it does not have the power to ratify or block an appointment. I see. It remains the prime minister and cabinet's prerogative to make the appointment. So the hearing is just for transparency and accountability as opposed to anything else. So that keeps down the grandstanding. And in fact, we have a very funny process that's only started a few years back in 2006 with a committee hearing where we have an academic who chairs the meeting and tells all the politicians what they may or may not ask. 
Oh, so, really? And if a ju- <laughs> and, yeah, so if a, if a minister, if an MP asks a question, well, Justice, you, you said X, Y, or Z in such and such a case, how do you explain that? The chair of the committee will say you can't ask that question. So it's almost they are treated a bit like children. You know, who can't be trusted to ask the right questions. But at the same time, so we have a, a kind of tepid process. Uh-huh. And depending on the nominee, it can be dull or it can be interesting. Mm-hmm. Some some nominees barely talk at all. They just say, oh, I can't answer this or that. Others have been quite forthcoming. Mm-hmm. Years ago, in the early 1990s, I did my own nomination hearing. I contacted the, I won't say nominee, it was just the appointed judge, and asked him if I could do my own hearing with him. And he was quite a gentleman, and he took all my questions and answered them in good faith. Uh-huh. And it was good fun. Well, Sean, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, you have some closing thoughts for our listeners. And I want to thank you very much for giving this, uh, giving this great exposition of how it's done in Canada versus in the United States. And for two neighbors, and we speak the same language, and we often, we often think that we're so alike— It appears that on this issue of abortion and on the issue of Supreme Court nominations and the politics of abortion, it's very, very different between our two countries. Yeah, we do have a very different tradition. And when our country was discussing this idea of Supreme Court nomination hearings, people in the legal community who were very conservative were saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They, were, they would often say to me, well, we don't want a circus like the one in the U.S. That was the word that they would use. I, I would argue, I mean, I, I was on the editorial board for a number of years, and we used to argue there that we needed accountability and transparency in, in our constitutional rights age. Well, I guess what is coming out of all of this is just we're looking at more and more internal strife in your country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're concerned very much about it. And while there is a, a lot of concern here about abortion, as I mentioned among some people, there is also concern about women's rights mm-hmm. and what is going to happen there. And I, I think people are very concerned here. Well, Sean, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today to discuss the political and judicial impact of the upcoming Roe versus Wade decision. And once again, thank you very much for taking the time to explain these the important differences between the way Canada does it and the way the United States does it. Well, Jim, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it greatly. It's been my pleasure. And for my listeners, as the San Francisco Experience celebrates its second anniversary with today's 276th episode, thank you for your ongoing support. We are featured on 19 podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, among others, with listeners in more than 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.